Well, again, a warm welcome to everyone who's here and all those who are um, watching online. It's good to be with you again tonight on a chilly, chilly night. Fall has come. This is session five of eight. So after tonight's session, we have three more to go. And uh, we've been thinking about God's purposes in suffering. So before we dive in, uh, let me begin with a word of prayer. Father, we come again tonight to ask that you would teach us what your purposes are in our suffering. That you would renew our mind. That we would think biblically. That we would think after thoughts after your thoughts. And we would have strength and courage to navigate the circumstances that you've put in our lives. Meet us tonight. Speak to us. Draw near, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, if you remember, uh, our overarching goal, I was drawing from Acts chapter 14, where Paul and Barnabas are on this mission trip, and they want to strengthen new believers. They want to encourage new believers, and they do it in a particular way. They do it with a message, and the message is summarized this way. Through many tribulations, we must enter into the kingdom of God. That's an interesting way to encourage people. Let me encourage you. You're going to have tribulation. In fact, they're necessary. They're a necessary part of the path that God has for your life. Now, again, just big picture wise, we've been thinking about some purposes of God and suffering that have to do with our own lives, how God uses suffering to sanctify us, how he uses it to mature us. But tonight we're kind of shifting and we're going to think about how does, how does God use suffering in our lives for the good of others? Because God is not just doing a work in you, he's wanting to do a work through you and cause you to be a blessing to others. The, the Christian life never terminates with me, with us. It's always, God is always working in me in order that he might work through me to others. You, you see it there with Abraham. It's fascinating. The beginning of the story with Abraham, he says, I'm going to make your name great. I'm going to make you a nation. And then there's that so that, so that all the, the nations will be blessed, right? God is always doing a work in us so that he might do a work through us. Um, as we're thinking through these various purposes uh, of, of God and suffering, it, it's interesting to note that God doesn't come to us and say, all right, you know, this particular suffering, I want to, I want to teach you this lesson right here. And okay, now this, this suffering here, this is to prove your faith. Now, this suffering, I really want to expose some sin in your life. And now over here, I'm giving you this suffering so you can comfort others in their trials. It, 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 God doesn't do that with us, does he? Suffering comes into our lives, and I believe that often God is doing multiple things all at the same time. Uh, God can work out multiple purposes at once. Do you believe that? And in the midst of the same trial. Now, you have there in your notes, last session Q&A. Um, so this is just introduction. I am tentatively, and the key word there is tentatively, uh, thinking of doing something a little different for our final session. That'll be session eight. And that is to have a Q&A session where you get to send in some questions and I'll try to respond to them. Uh, my email is there in the handouts on my email. It's an office email. 
Uh, if you're watching online, it should be printed on the video as you're watching. You may send questions into that email address, uh, or you may also write them on a piece of paper. I think there's paper in the back, and you can put it, there's a little offering box. You can just slip it in there, and I'll get it that way as well, if you'd rather do it the old-fashioned way. Um, I probably won't have time to address every question, so I'm going to skip some questions. That allows me to pick the easier ones, not the harder ones. Um, I'll be selective. If I don't answer your question, forgive me. Uh, What questions are fair game? I would say here are the questions that are fair game. Any questions that arise out of what we've studied is fair game, as well as any uh, questions on the topic of suffering in general. Okay, so anything that we've covered or anything on the topic of suffering are fair game. Again, um, the purpose in doing this is I'm not trying to set myself up as an expert on suffering in any way, so that is not my goal. Uh, But I'm, I'm hoping that I'll create an opportunity for you to respond. There'll be a little bit of interaction. That's the goal, so that I could hear a little bit from you. Because I think as I hear some of the questions that you might submit, I'll get a sense of what you're hearing and what maybe is still unclear to you. Um, And again, my goal will be to simply to answer some of these questions in a way that is faithful to the Word of God. Okay, so Q&A for the final session. You have to send them in in advance because I am not going to answer questions off the cuff. So there's going to be no raised hands, and uh, I'll just have it all ready to go. Does that make sense? Okay, Uh, so this week, next week, that's all fair game. You can send those questions in. I'll remind you again next week. Now, if you would now turn to 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians, that's where we're going to be camped out tonight. And tonight we're going to be thinking about how God uses suffering to equip us to minister comfort to others. Okay. He's, God uses suffering in our lives for the sake of others, to benefit others. Now, in order to get into 2 Corinthians, the 2 Corinthians kind of has a complicated background. And I think it is important that we understand something of the historical background that we find ourselves in in this letter. So try to follow along as I try to explain a little bit about Paul in his interactions with the believers, the church in Corinth. Paul was an apostle. He was a missionary. He was a church planter. And he planted the church in Corinth probably around the year 51-52 A.D. Okay, 51-52. Long time ago, planted that church. He spent about a year and a half there in Corinth. And then he left because he's, he's going to go plant other churches, right? So he moves on. Three years later, approximately three years later, we find Paul in Ephesus. And Paul is doing ministry in Ephesus. And he, he hears news from the church in Corinth, that things are not going that great. They have lots of questions. There's lots of controversy. There's there's just a lot going on. And so he writes 1 Corinthians. And if you've read 1 Corinthians, he's dealing with a lot of issues in that letter. And he sends that letter with a man named Timothy. Timothy was like Paul's right-hand man. From everything we see in Scripture, Timothy was not a very forceful personality. But he sends the letter with Timothy. And it doesn't go very well. They don't necessarily receive the letter that well. Paul ends up going himself. It's a difficult visit. It's a a sorrowful visit. They reject his message. He mentions it here in 2 Corinthians, this visit. 
and he writes what seems to be a letter that is missing to us, uh, but it's mentioned here. He calls it a sorrowful letter. It was a difficult letter. It was a harsh letter. Um, Harsh in the sense, not harsh, but he had to reprove them. He had to rebuke them. And he sends that second letter, that harsher letter, with a man named Titus. Now, Titus seemed to have a little bit more he seemed to be a little bit more of a stronger personality. He says, Titus, you try this one. <laughs> you go. And so Titus goes with the next letter, and Paul is in anguish. He's in inner turmoil. He's there in Ephesus. He's written this difficult letter. He's sent it with Titus, and he's just, he's just eaten up inside. And that's what he's mentioning in 2 Corinthians. How are they going to receive it? Are they going to respond to this strong letter? What are they going to do with Titus? How is this all going to go? And so he decides, I'm going to make my way to get closer to when Titus starts his return journey. I want to intercept him. And so Paul goes to Macedonia. He goes up over the Aegean Sea. He goes to Macedonia because that's the return journey that Titus is going to be on. And he's there and he's waiting. He doesn't want to go to Corinth because he doesn't know how he's going to be received. Does that make sense? And he's in anguish. He's in, he's in turmoil. Paul, Paul describes what he's going through in 2 Corinthians in these words. Much affliction, anguish of heart, sorrow, no rest for my spirit, afflicted on every side, conflicts without fears within. He even uses language of depression or downcast. It's very interesting. And there in Macedonia, well, and... and I'll just add this. Not only is he bearing all this in his heart, this issue with the Corinthians and whether or not they're going to turn back to God in in repentance, but something big happened in Ephesus while he was there. Before he headed out to Macedonia, he mentions it in 2 Corinthians right after our passage that some major catastrophe or event took place, a major trial in his life. He uses language of um, we were burdened excessively beyond our strength. And he says, we despaired even of life. We weren't even sure if we were going to live. And then he says, but God rescued us. So, so Paul's going through a lot. Does that make sense? And there he is in Macedonia. He's in anguish. He's waiting. And Titus shows up. And Titus shows up with good news. The Corinthians have responded to the letter. And they have repented, and they're asking for forgiveness, and Paul is elated. Paul actually says he's comforted by this news. Now, this is where there's more to the letter, but that's as far as we're going to get. (laughs) Second Corinthians is a complicated letter, but that's as far. That sets us up to dive into Second Corinthians chapter 1, verse 3. Okay, this is the way he begins this letter. And just as, as, as you read it, just sense something of the relief in Paul's tone as he begins this letter. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all of our affliction. You hear that? He comforts, comforts us in all our affliction so that we will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For just as the sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance, so also our comfort is abundant through Christ. But if we are afflicted, it's for your comfort and salvation. 
or if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which is effective in the patient enduring of the same sufferings which we also suffer. And our hope for you is firmly grounded, knowing that as you are sharers of our sufferings, so also you are sharers of our comfort. So Paul begins, like Peter, not rehearsing all his troubles, but declaring, blessed be the God, blessed be God, praise be to God, the God of mercies, the God of comfort that is in the midst of our pain and suffering. We need to recognize that true comfort, the comfort that we really need, ultimately comes from God. God is the God, not of some comfort, but note of all comfort, all comfort. Now, what does Paul have in mind with this word comfort? We really need to understand what this word means. Comfort is not mere pacification. Like, you know, you have this baby that's screaming and crying, and so you start to jiggle it, and then you thump its back, and then you try to give it a toy, and you're trying to pacify this upset baby. But God is not the great diverter. He's not the great pacifier. No. God comforts, not by, as as one commentator said, not by giving us a tranquilizing dose of grace that doles our pain, but by giving us a stiffening agent that fortifies our hearts, minds, and souls. There's two ideas in this word comfort um, that I'll just focus on. One, this word comfort means consolation. It means the lifting up of our spirits. It has that idea, to lift up our spirits. But the second idea in this word, from the Greek word, is that it it emboldens, it also emboldens us in a belief or in a particular action. It strengthens us. It gives us courage. Another commentator says it's an inner revitalization. I like that. It's an inner revitalization and an infusion of divine strength. It's an infusion of divine strength. That's the idea of Comfort. So you have my definition in your notes. I say there that God's comfort is his gracious work when he lifts up our spirits and he strengthens us to persevere in trusting him. He lifts up our spirit and he imparts new strength, new courage, courage to go on. Well, how does God go about comforting us? The the passage here does not tell us how God comforts us. It just tells us that he does. He comforts us. But if if you pull back and you think of the whole word of God, I think we could say that God comforts us in at least three ways. First, God comforts us with his presence. His presence. And he's promised to us, right, that he will never leave us. And he will never forsake us. And there are times, especially in deep suffering, when God's presence is tangible and his presence is comforting. Comforting. So he comforts us with his presence. He also comforts us with his words. His words. He speaks truth to us. He makes promises to us. Like a good general stirring up new hope and strength in his beleaguered troops, God speaks and he imparts new courage by his word. You can think of last week of Job. God comes to Job and God speaks. He speaks truth. 
God comforts us with his presence. He comforts us with his word. But he also comforts us by his actions. His actions. Because God is not just present. He doesn't just speak, but he acts on our behalf. He orders our lives. He works for our good. Think about Paul. Paul just described in the section right after our passage, he describes this great trial and how God rescued him. That's comfort. It's comforting when someone comes to your rescue. Now, when does God administer his comfort? So next section there in your notes, when does God administer his comfort? Well, look at verse 4. Who comforts us when? In all our afflictions. In some of our afflictions? No, in all our afflictions. And then he goes on so that we might be able to comfort those who are in any affliction. So you put those two together and when does God comfort us? In any and all affliction. That's what Paul's saying, right? In any and all affliction. But then you get to verse 5, and verse 5 can maybe trip us up a little bit. Because there he describes this affliction as being the sufferings of Christ. You see that? For if the sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance, so also our comfort is ours in abundance. So what does he mean here by the sufferings of Christ? Now, he's not speaking here of the sufferings of Christ on the cross. That's very clear because all the way through, it's very clear that Christ's redemptive sufferings are finished. He died once and for all, the just for the unjust. He brought us to God. It's done. Does that make sense? So he's not speaking about Jesus's redemptive sufferings, but he's speaking about the sufferings that are ours because of our union with Christ. And so what Paul is doing here is he's alluding, he's speaking of a theology of union with Christ. He's drawing upon that. When you came to Christ, when you became a Christian, you were put in Jesus. You were placed into Christ. You became a part of Christ. You became a member of Christ. In fact, if you go back to the, a previous letter of Paul to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 12, he explains to them, for even as the body is one, and yet it has a lot of members, fingers, toes, eyes, ears, and all the members of the body, though they are many, are one body, so also is Christ. That's how you need to think about Christ. You may be a finger or a toe or an ear or an eye, but you're all part of the body of Jesus Christ. You're, you're a member, a part of him. And then a little later down there in 1 Corinthians 12, he says this, which is fascinating. He says, and if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. And there's an implication here. If if one member suffers, if one part of the body of Christ suffers, the whole body suffers. Which by implication, Christ suffers. When one member suffers, because you're in Christ, Christ suffers. You are encased in Christ. You are in Christ. Nothing can touch you 
that does not first touch him if you are in Jesus. Now, clearly, we look at Paul and we can say, well, of course, you're sharing in the sufferings of Christ. You're the great missionary. You're the great, you know, you're the great church planter. You're going through all these sufferings for the sake of Christ. But what's fascinating here is that Paul says that you two Corinthians are sharers in Christ's sufferings. And the Corinthians are not great missionaries or church planters. They're just ordinary Christians. In fact, they're not always doing so well as Christians. (laughs) They're struggling Christians. And he says, this is true of you too. The point I'm trying to make tonight is whether we're a pastor or a plumber, whether we're a missionary or a mechanical engineer, whether you're a student or a stay-at-home mom, if you're in Jesus Christ, then you belong to him. And whatever he calls you to go through, He calls you to go through it for his sake, for his purposes. And those afflictions he calls us to are rightly called the sufferings of Christ. So when and where does God administer his comfort? Well, let's just say it again. In all our affliction, in any affliction. And so I ask you tonight, have you experienced God's comfort in affliction? Have you experienced God's comfort in your affliction? I have. I know I have experienced his comfort. All right, next point. What is the relationship between suffering and comfort? Look at verse 5. For just as the suffering of Christ are ours in abundance, there's something else that is there in abundance, and that is our comfort. Our comfort is abundant through Christ The greater the suffering, the greater the comfort. The greater the suffering, the greater the comfort. There is no affliction without comfort. That's what Paul is saying here. God does not administer affliction without without also administering comfort. As one commentator put it, the more we are afflicted, so much the greater is the consolation prepared for us by God. Suffering is abundant because of our union with Christ, because of our identification with Christ. But he also says our comfort is abundant because of our union with Christ. It's interesting how both are related to Christ. God is the God of all comfort. But now we, we step forward here in our notes, and God has a purpose in comforting us. And it's not just about us. Why does God comfort us? God comforts us so that we can comfort others. We're back in verse 4 here. We're sticking around verse 3, 4, and 5. We're back in verse 4. It's interesting. God does not comfort us just so we can feel better. He comforts us with others in mind. One person put it this way. God does not comfort us to make us comfortable but to make us comforters. That's a good way to put it, right? God doesn't comfort us to make us comfortable, but in order that we might be comforters. He comforts us so that we might share that comfort with others, so that that comfort might overflow to others. In other words, he always gives us a really good dose of comfort so that it's more than we can handle, and it overflows to other people. 
that tells us something. It tells us that God's comfort can kind of come to us in two ways, two big ways. God's comfort can come to us directly. He can comfort us directly, his presence, his word. But it can, can also come to us indirectly. That is, it can be mediated through God's people. It's possible for us to incarnate, to embody God's comfort to another person. You realize that? You can embody God's comfort to another person. It's not your comfort. That's not what Paul's saying here. Look at verse 4 again. Who comforts us in all our affliction so that we will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with what? With the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. So whether it comes directly from God or it's mediated through God's people, it's still God's comfort, ultimately. A comfort that comes from God. Now, how do we go about incarnating God's comfort to others? How do we do that? Well, I'd say we do it in the same way God does it. Sometimes it's just by showing up. Just by being there. Just by our presence. We can embody God's comforting presence with our own presence. We're walking in the Spirit, walking in, in Christ. That's quite something, isn't it? It's quite something. We can speak. We can speak words of truth. Comforting words. In a way, that's a little bit what this whole series is about. Because much of what I've shared with you in these evenings is the comfort with which God has comforted me. And I'm just sharing it with you. I'm, I'm letting you experience some of the comfort I got <laughs> over the years. And sometimes we can comfort others by our actions, right? By acting. Yeah, by a meal, a helping hand. Sometimes even our own perseverance. It's interesting, if you look at Paul in the context here, how was he comforted? He was comforted when he heard that the Corinthians had repented, had turned from their rejection of him, and, and had embraced his message. He, and he saw that, and he was comforted by it. I remember during my seven months in ICU, being comforted with God's comfort through his people in all three ways. I was. People showed up. They were just there. People spoke words of truth, sometimes difficult words, but they were piercing words. They were, word, they were like lifelines to me. And people acted in a myriad of ways, blessed us, loved on us. I remember at one point wrestling, God, do you love me? <laughs> you know, I'm going through so much. How can you love me? But the one thing I could never deny was God's love through his people. It was overwhelming. Okay, God, you are loving. You're loving me through your people. God comforts us so that we might share that comfort with others. But what is it that qualifies? Here's the next question. What qualifies us to impart comfort? What gives you the right? What gives me the right to comfort another person? Sometimes we think this way. We think, well, I can't speak into that person's life. I haven't been through what they've been through. You know, I don't know what it's like to be in a wheelchair, so how can I go and comfort that guy? You know, um, I haven't experienced cancer, so how can I comfort that individual? 
It's true that God sometimes gives us specific experiences. And when we share with another individual in specific life experiences, we're able to identify with them in a unique way. Absolutely true. But that does not mean that if I've not experienced cancer, I can't minister to someone with cancer. Or if I haven't experienced the loss of a loved one, I can't minister to someone who's lost a loved one. What is it that enables us, that qualifies us to impart comfort? It's not that we've experienced the exact same suffering as another person, because the reality is there's no two lives here that are identical. There's no two individuals here who have experienced the exact same set of circumstances. What qualifies us? It's this, that we have experienced God's comfort in our own affliction. What what allows you to comfort another individual? What, What qualifies you to do that? You having experienced God's comfort in your own affliction, which means A, You need to experience affliction. (laughs) B, you need to experience God's comfort. And then you minister that same comfort to others. And that's what he's saying. Again, verse 4. Who comforts us in all our affliction so that we will be able to comfort those who are, note, in any affliction. So God comforting me in my particular affliction enables me, equips me, prepares me to minister to someone in any affliction. So I ask you, how has God comforted you in your affliction? How has God done that? What truth, what truths have sustained you in your affliction? How has God strengthened you? And how can you then embody that comfort to others around you who are suffering? Well, this takes us to verse 6. And verse 6, in some sense, is like the, the conclusion or the, 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 the major point that he's making here as he works through this passage. And he says, look at verse 6 with me, but if we are afflicted, it's for your comfort and salvation. And that's some strong words. Why are we afflicted? It's for your comfort. It's for your salvation. Whoa, Paul, what are you saying? Why does God ordain suffering in our lives? Um, he says here it's for comfort and for salvation. I believe what, God, what, what Paul is speaking about here when he says salvation is he's speaking again about that ultimate salvation, that salvation that we will experience when we have persevered to the end and we see Jesus face to face, we receive everything that he's promised. And here's the logic. Try to follow with me the logic. First, you have suffering. Okay, there's affliction. And Paul's very clear. If you experience affliction, the sufferings of Christ, there will be what? Comfort, right? And God's comfort does something for us. It causes us and enables us to persevere. And that perseverance leads ultimately to receiving everything that God's promised. Do you you see the progression there? Suffering leads to comfort, which leads to perseverance, which leads to salvation. So if I'm suffering, Paul's saying, it's for your comfort 
and ultimately your salvation. Look at the next question in your notes. What is the goal of comfort? The goal of comfort is perseverance. Back to verse 6. I want you to see it there in the text. But if we are afflicted, afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. Or if we are comforted, it is for your comfort. Note this relative clause now, which is effective in the patient enduring of the same suffering which we also suffer. What is effective? Your comfort. This comfort is effective. The comfort is effective in doing what? In patient endurance. You following? Affliction, comfort leads to endurance, leads to salvation. Now I'm going to get technical. Hang in there with me for just a minute. But I think I need to do this because some of you may be reading out of the ESV. Oh boy, here I go. Translations. The ESV actually says something different than the Bible that I'm using. And I, it's just better to go ahead and mention that. Uh, it translates that relative clause, that last bit of, cha- of verse 6, differently. It says this. It says, if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Now, here's, here's the bottom line. Here's the difference between the translations. The NASB, which I'm using, as well as the NIV and the King James Version, all say that comfort is effective, enables us to persevere. It's effective in leading to perseverance. The ESV is saying God's comfort is ours when we persevere. You hear the difference? In the ESV, comfort depends on you persevering. In the NASB, comfort leads to persevering. (laughs) That's a pretty big difference. Now, let's just back off and just say, both are theologically correct. There is a comfort from persevering. So it's absolutely true. And it all depends on whether you take one word in the Greek as a passive or a middle. And, and I won't explain that. So it is just which way you go there uh, takes you in two very different directions. I'm landing on the NASB. I just wanted to say, I think you could explain both what routes, okay? But I'm going to land here because I really believe what Paul is saying here is that God's comfort, is effective in causing us to persevere and ultimately receiving salvation from God. Does that make sense what I just went through? Went through it maybe quickly. You can ask me more about it afterwards if you like. As you are comforted by God and patiently endure your suffering, just know, as you are comforted by God, and you patiently endure, do you realize that that is a comfort to everyone around you? It's an encouragement to everyone around you? As Christ enables you to hold fast in faith, that comforts me. (laughs) That encourages me. And that causes me to persevere. And all of this, verse 7, leads to hope. Hope. Verse 7, and our hope for you is firmly grounded. It's a, it's a hope that's certain, a hope that is reliable. Knowing that as you are shares of our suffering, so also you are shares of our comfort. Here's what I believe Paul is saying, that as we suffer and experience God's comfort and persevere in our faith, that actually increases our hope. It increases our hope. 
Hope in what? Hope, this, this settled certainty that we belong to God. This settled certainty that he is keeping us, that he is causing us to persevere, and that one day we will stand in his glorious presence. That's the hope. Some good background music. Romans 5, it's interesting. It's almost exactly the same as Romans 5. Beginning of Romans 5 says we're justified by faith. And we stand in this grace. And we hope, we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. We get this great joy, this great hope that's ahead of us. We, We rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And then he says this. He says, not only that, but we rejoice or we exult in what? We don't just rejoice in hope of the glory of God, but we rejoice in what? You tell me. Come on, first years. Suffering or tribulation, right? We rejoice, we exult in tribulation, knowing what? The tribulation produces what? Perseverance, same thing, right? Perseverance, character. And character leads to what? Here's what's going on. Suffering does not undermine our hope. (laughs) Suffering can increase our hope. Suffering can deepen our hope. Suffering can cause us to exult even more. As God uses it to cause us to persevere in our Christian lives. What do we do with all of this here by way of conclusion, by way of application? What does this passage, think about what does this passage tell us about God's purposes in suffering? Well, it tells us this, that God brings affliction into our lives for the good of others, for the comfort of others, for the perseverance unto salvation of others. That's one of the purposes why God brings affliction into your life and into my life. I'll be personal here for a minute. If God had never visited me with suffering, I would not be preaching these sessions. I mean, I would, I would probably, this would not be my topic. My suffering is for your benefit. It's for your sakes. This, this is what Paul is saying here. Michael, why are you in a wheelchair? Well, it's for your sakes. It's, it's for you. It's for your benefit. That's that's what Paul's saying. But I can turn the tables. Why are you suffering tonight? Why are you going through what you're going through? It's for for my benefit. It's for my sake. It's for the sake of those, everyone who's around you, who's watching your life. As I look around tonight, I don't know everyone's story here, but, but I know a lot of you. And I know your sufferings. I know some of the things you've gone through. And let me just say this. I have been comforted by you. I have. I've been encouraged to persevere in trusting God because of some of the truths that you have declared in your suffering. Because the lives that you are living, even in the midst of affliction, it's encouraged me. It's caused me. It's, it's, it's part of me persevering. It's your lives. You realize that. That's what Paul is saying. 
I suffer, you benefit. You suffer, I benefit. There is a mutual building up that takes place as we suffer and receive and then minister God's comfort. There's a mutual building up and a mutual together persevering, persevering. And so I just want to say tonight, my brothers and sisters, our suffering is not in vain. It's it's not in vain. It's not without purpose. It has great value. There is great value in the affliction that God brings into your life. And it's having great effect, even if you don't perceive it. You might not even realize the encouragement that you are bringing to another believer. You might not realize it. But your response to your suffering may be the encouragement that is needed for another believer not to give up. Not to throw the towel in. To keep enduring another day until Jesus comes back. Isn't that wonderful? God uses suffering in our lives to equip us to minister his comfort to others. And as we minister God's comfort, whether that's whether we receive God's comfort directly or indirectly, we're encouraged to persevere until the day when we receive the crown of life, the crown of life from the Lord Jesus himself. Would you bow in prayer? Father, we thank you tonight for your word and how it clearly communicates to us one of the purposes that you have in the midst of our suffering. Father, I come and ask that we would not view our suffering lightly as worthless that you would enable us to see the value of it, the potential of it, as we respond to you. So, So use it, Father. Use our suffering for your glory in our lives. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.